Well, let's turn uh, this evening to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to read a few verses from the beginning of this chapter. Let me just read from verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been clean or cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Gracious Lord, please minister to us that illumination of your Holy Spirit to grasp and to obey your word. In Jesus' name. Well, we're moving to look at the second section of Hebrews, and uh, in chapter 10, we're getting near the end of that second huge section of the book, and there is one, there is one scripture that in many ways holds the three sections of Hebrews together, and that is the 110th Psalm. It's, uh, it's referenced at least 14 times. And when it's referenced, it's always applied to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews has been described, at least by one scholar, as an extended exposition of the 110th Psalm, especially verses 1 and 4. You'll know that it begins with these words. David begins, The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, Both names, of course, and both words used of the God of Israel, the Most High God. Though they are distinguished, they're both described or addressed as Lord. Jesus references it in Mark 12 and leaves no room for doubt. He argues that since David hails the Messiah as Lord, then the Messiah is not David's son, but God's son that his lineage is more exalted, therefore, than that of David. Now, Simon Gathercall of Cambridge University points out that verse 3 of that psalm 
uh, talks about the begetting of the Son. We looked at that when we were looking at chapter 1. Uh, and therefore, this section of, uh, of Psalm 110 very much fits into that first chapter of the book. Here's how the Septuagint, the Greek version, reads verse 2. With you, is one of the Lord's mentioned, with you is the sovereign authority on the day of your power in the midst of the bright splendors of the holy ones from the womb before the dawn-bearing morning star appeared. I begot you. Now, the Greek translation, you know, was favored by Jesus and the early church. And what Gallicol says is that this, this translation clearly says that before the dawn of time in creation itself, the Christ, the Messiah, known as Lord in this, in this um, was begotten, not created or made. So the psalm covers the statements we have in chapter 1 of Hebrews in which the person of Christ is identified. He is the Lord. He is the one begotten before the morning star appeared from all eternity. Before there was time, before there was matter, before there was anything. He was eternally begotten of the Father. The same psalm sets us up then for this great section that I want to look at this evening. Because the, the same Lord, uh, the same person who speaks in the character of God, speaks to the Son and says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer see, sees in this psalm as describing that moment when the pre-existent Christ receives before the dawn of time his eternal priesthood, in the order of Melchizedek by virtue of an oath sworn by God himself. So he is appointed priest by God directly. He's not of Aaron's line, therefore he's not of the earthly and human priesthood. He is of the line of Melchizedek, this shadowy figure, this individual who appears, you remember, to Abraham, blesses Abraham, and the writer to the Hebrews argues that the greater blesses the lesser, and that Abraham is giving tithes to Melchizedek. You give tithes to the greater, and he's saying that in terms of the Bible sense, in terms of the way in which the Holy Spirit embeds into the stories of the Bible, the things which, it, which not only it states, but the things that it doesn't say, are part of the message that it's giving to the church. The writer to the Hebrews recognizes the Holy Spirit has placed this character in Scripture as a type, as a pointer to the Savior. And he says, here is this character who appears on the stage of Holy Scripture. He comes from nowhere. Nothing is said in, in the book of generations, in the book of Genesis, for goodness sake which is littered with these genealogies. That's what it's all about. It's tracing the story of humanity from its beginning in Adam to its scattering throughout the whole world. It's following the story of Abraham and his family because it's going to lead to the Messiah in the book of generations and genealogies. This one man does not have 
any place in any genealogy, either leading up to him or flowing from him. He stands suspended in space and time. He was a real person. He was the king of Salem. He was a a righteous man. He was a priest of the Most High God. In fact, he brings a special revelation of God. That title, the Most High God, is then used by Abraham and by others subsequently. God Most High and so on. He's a bringer of revelation. He is a prophet and a priest and a king. And he is a pointer forward to Christ. And in the 110th Psalm, out of the blue, God the Lord speaking to God the Lord says, I have appointed you a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Not part of the earthly priesthood, but in this priesthood set apart from all the rest. And uh, he stands out therefore, the, the priesthood of Christ stands out therefore in stark contrast to the priesthood established by Moses in the law. And that's the law that's being referred to then here in chapter 10. It is specifically the ceremonial law. He goes on to explain and specify those sacrifices, that is the sacrifices specified in the ceremonial law that are offered year after year continually. In other words, when he talks about the law here, he's not talking about the law in the sense of the moral law, but the law in reference to the form and manner and liturgy of worship under the old covenant church. The way of worshiping God. A way of worshiping God that survived for a long period of time with some hiccups on the journey from Moses to Jesus. This was the way God's people were to worship God. And it wasn't a bad way. There is nothing said about it that criticizes and critiques the worship of God that was instituted by the law of God under Moses. It wasn't a bad thing. But the writer says it was a shadow, a shadow of good things to come. Now, a shadow is something. It's not nothing. And a shadow can be significant. It can have some meaning. I, I, I was walking up the road in, in Philadelphia uh, just a few months ago, and it was uh, what was quite new for the, for the occasion. It was a very bright, sunny day. We hadn't had any for a long time. It had been miserable. Nearly like Glasgow, but not quite as bad as Glasgow. But, but it was a sunny day, and, and I had on this cap that I got at Brooks Brothers in a sale, and uh, it was one of these flat caps. It's like a working man's cap uh, that, that they have in Britain, and uh, though it was a posh one because it was from Brooks Brothers. Anyway, I, I'm wearing this thing. I'm wearing this thing along the road. The shadow, my shadow is cast in front of me. I don't normally look at my shadow. I'm not that self-obsessed. But on this occasion, walking up, I was just became conscious of, of the movement. It was the gate, actually, that got my attention because I thought, you walk like your dad. And then I looked, and as I'm looking down, I see the outline of the cap and the shape of my head. 
And I had this dreadful thing. You're just getting like your dad. Now, there's nothing wrong with my dad. My dad was a great guy. I just don't want to be like my dad. <laughs> not with the cap. And, 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 and I'm not the same size as my dad. But anyway, but I just did not want to be at that stage of life. I, I'm in total denial of my age and circumstances and everything. I mean, that's just a reality. And my kids remind me often of the realities that I'm trying to deny. But the point is that the shadow was not nothing. There were things about the shadow that were accurate representations, unfortunately, of the person's gait and hat and the shape of the head of that person, of me, as I was walking along the road. So those are significant details. And the shadow of the old covenant way of worship has significant details. It involved a substitute. It involved the death of that substitute. And it involved a priesthood who offered the sacrifice in the place of the people. That's not nothing. That's something. But it does not have the substance of the real thing. A shadow can't do anything. A shadow can't lift something up. It can't move anything. And the writer says that those sacrifices were not nothing. They were a shadow of good things to come. But they were not the substance. They were not the real thing. But they pointed forward to the real thing. What were these good things that were to come? These good things that were to come included every spiritual blessing that you and I have in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing. These good things to come include your regeneration, your adoption, the forgiveness of your sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the preserving and persevering grace of God with you, and your final resurrection and ultimate glorification. These were the good things that were to come in Christ. And these sacrifices pointed forward to those good things, eternal life, everlasting glory. There are many things in life, many good things in life, but they are not these good things that are absolutely good. They are relative goods. But this is talking about the absolute good that is given to us as we're given every spiritual blessing in him. The law was a shadow, says Paul, a shadow of things to come. But the body, says Paul in Colossians 2, is of Christ. And this sacrificial sacerdotal system, like a shadow, represented, though its contours are familiar and give the right impression, but they were simply representing the ultimate reality. But the dynamic, the life, the vigor, the achievements, the value of the real thing in Christ were absent. On the other hand, there is what we might call the substance itself, the image. That is the one who casts the shadow. And so under the old covenant, 
though they were priests and sacrifices, they were not our great high priest. And they were not the final sacrifice for sin. This is so obvious to our author because these these priests never rested. Those sacrifices were made continuously, he says, year after year after year, repeated over and over again. Therefore, he says, these religious exercises could never perfect those who drew near to God, those who came to worship God, those who, who came uh, near to God, present to God, and who were following the means by which they could have fellowship with God. This sacrificial system could never perfect those people. It could never complete the package of God's blessing. It could never sanctify them. It could never dedicate them. It could only represent and shadow what was to come. It could not effect what was to come. Did that mean, did that mean therefore, that, that believers in the Old Testament church did not find any rest or joy in forgiveness? The, the answer has to be yes, they did. In a measure, they did. The sacrifices continued. They continued to point forward to something better that was to come. I mean, I can illustrate this the way they would have thought from the story of David. David, you remember, had committed adultery and murder. There were no sacrifices for deliberate sins like adultery and murder. And yet in his, in his song of repentance, Psalm 51, his faith reaches beyond the present regime. He uses the language of the first Passover when the lamb died so that the boys would live. And he cries out to God based on the first Passover and based on his hope that somehow, somewhere down the road, there would be a sacrifice for a sin like his. And he cries to God, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. As if he's saying to the Lord, Lord, I know perfectly well there is no sacrifice to cover the sins I've committed. I know perfectly well that there's nothing written in the law that can purge my conscience for what I have done. I grieve over what I've done. My grieving does not purge my conscience. I'm repentant for what I've done, but my repentance does not of itself cleanse my heart from sin. But Lord, will you purge me with hyssop? Will you dip the hyssop into that sacrifice you know of that I don't know anything about? The sacrifice that you know of that can cleanse and renew all my sin, even these mortal sins of adultery and murder. Sprinkle me clean. And we all know that when Christ was on the cross, As he hung there on the cross, men who were unwitting of these realities put a cloth full of water on a hyssop stick and pointed it up towards his mouth. 
as if to point to David, to David and others who had looked forward for the sacrifice that could deal with their particular sins. As if to point to Jesus and say, here is the sacrifice that can purge David from the guilt of adultery and murder. Here is the sacrifice that will take away sins once and for all. But that final sacrifice would have to wait. But David's indicating faith reached out to it, even under the old covenant. Because if their sacrifices had been efficient, they would have purged David of his sins. So the effect of perfecting is purging. The effect of completing is cleansing. And the cleansing and the purging here pertains to the guilt of sin and is the effect, the writer goes on to say, of Christ's priestly sacrifice of himself. He puts us right with God. He cleanses, washes away sin because he has offered the one sacrifice that turns aside, that appeases, that propitiates the law, the the wrath of God. Now, for those who have been cleansed by Christ, therefore there is no agitating, judging, condemning conscience. The more I lean into Christ, the more I lean my weight into him, the more I trust in the utter accomplishment of all of his work, the more more I rest in Christ because he has met the law's demands in his one sacrifice for sin, the more I do that, the more my conscience finds rest. But while those sacrifices were going on, the author goes on to say in verse 3, those sacrifices were not a refreshing reminder of pardon. Those sacrifices were, in fact, a reminder of sin. Year after year, day after day, a reminder of sin. I mean, we remind ourselves of sin. We confess our sins to God every day because Jesus said that we're to pray for daily pardon as well as daily bread. When we go to church, in one form or another, whether more liturgical or less liturgical, somebody somewhere is going to pray as we come into worship, confessing our sins. And then hearing the word of God's pardon. But confession, as John Owen reminds us, our confession is not part of the atonement for sin. We confess our sins with the confidence that there's a word of the gospel to remind us that our sins have been pardoned on the basis of Christ's death for us. But the Old Testament believers did not have that assurance. Look what he says in verse 4. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. These sacrifices perpetually reminded people of the curse of the law, even though the death of the animals meant a commuting of the sentence of death, physical death for those worshippers. Nonetheless, the death of these costly creatures 
were only a reminder of the gruesome effects of sin. And yet the sacrifices pointed forward to that sacrifice that would finally take away sin. God appointed no sacrifice until he had given the promise of the seed of the woman, to, of the seed of the woman who would crush Satan, but who would be injured in the process. And these sacrifices pointed forward to the seed of the woman who would be, who would be touched, who would be injured in the process of crushing Satan. They pointed forward to the one sacrifice that would, in the language of Hebrews, take away sin. Now it's in that context then that in verse 5, the writer talks about the pleasure of the Father. Where Father, we're told, takes no pleasure in all the many sacrifices and offerings. That's not to say that he hadn't initiated that, that way of wor working and worship. But it is to say that in contrast, he has been pleased to act in love and grace and wisdom for us and for our salvation. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, a body you have prepared for me, and I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. We're being pointed back to those conversations that you find in the book of Psalms. There are many of them. In which we're pleased by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to hear, as it were, conversations within the Trinity. Now I say, as it were. You're not to imagine for one minute that the three members of the Trinity are sitting down having a conversation with one another. If you're thinking that, go out, bang your head against the wall and come back in and you'll be healed. No, no. But what it does project to us, what, what it does describe for us as we come to this little passage here, is that here we have the Holy Trinity acting inseparably and indivisibly, acting as one in this whole process. The words of our text are revealed in Scripture. That means that they were communicated by the Holy Spirit through his servants, the prophet. So the Holy Spirit's active here. He's active here because you've got to ask yourself, where did these words come from? They came from the Holy Spirit. What are the words about? The words are about what's going on in the mind of God. Who knows the deep things of God? Paul says it's the Holy Spirit who knows the deep things of God. Exhaustively, the Holy Spirit knows what's going on in God because he is God. And the words are the words of the Lord Jesus. When he comes into the world, he says, did he verbally say these words? No. Did he have a conversation with God? No, but the Holy Spirit's communicating to us. So what he does is he takes the one will of God, expressed in a nanosecond, if it was even a nanosecond, and he is breaking it down so that we can see elements of it happening. He's accommodating this to our understanding. And he's saying, he's saying this is what the mind and will of God was. The mind and will of God the Son was. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
That was going on in the mind of God as the Son came into the world. In his coming into the world of the incarnation, his coming in the flesh, his being made flesh, his being manifest in the flesh. He comes to address the sin question at its deepest level. With the Holy Spirit, the Son knows the deep things of God. One of the most, one of the most amazing things to contemplate is that only the Father comprehends the Son. And only the Son comprehends the Father, and only the Father and the Son comprehend the Holy Spirit. We can only stand on the outside, talk about them. We're on the outside. Only God comprehends God. And John Owen says, no sacrifice of the law, not all of them together, were a means for the, exposi- the expiation of sin, the cleansing of sin, suited to the glory of God or to the necessities of the souls of men. So there you have God's pleasure. Here you have the Son's mission, a body you've prepared for me. In the psalm, it says, an ear you have bored for me. Now you think about an ear for a moment. What is it? Yeah, you're going to say, it's ugly. No, that's not what I'm thinking. It's an instrument of hearing. Yes, it is. But it's also part of what? A body. And in some of the versions of the of the Sam, that's been quoted here, the word body is used because in, in the ancient world, the part refers to the whole. So if you refer to an ear, you're obviously referring to a body because it's part of a body. So the, the, the lesser can refer to the whole thing. And so what it's saying is this, if the son is going to be the sacrifice that we need, he has to possess a human body and a human soul. That's the double referent here. The ear is mentioned in the psalmist because the psalmist wants to stress that in the human body, God has created the ear, which is the means by which the creature hears the word of God and may therefore learn how to be compliant with the word and will of God. In his divine nature, It was not possible to do the will of God in a creaturely fashion. And so God the Father, we're told, prepares a human nature for the Son in which he might be free to obey the will of God as a creature, as a man. It was the mission of the Son to take our nature And in our nature, offer obedience to God on our behalf. And so that he would have a body in which to offer a sacrifice to God. And the body is the means of expressing the mind and will of the soul. By offering up his body, he made his soul an offering for sin. How could he make his soul an offering for sin if he didn't have a body? The the soul expresses itself by the body. Therefore, we can say about the offering of the Son that he offered himself, body and soul, his whole human nature. He offered them to God 
in all his substance, all his faculties, all his person, he offered himself to God in active obedience, the act of obedience due to God by his life of obedience and by the sacrifice of his life to death. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the mission of the Son, therefore, terminates in his incarnate life and in the work he did. But he didn't do it alone. At no point was the Son acting alone. He wasn't a lone ranger out there doing what he had to do. At every point, there is this action, the one action of God. Just as there is one will of God, there is one action of God. So here is the Father preparing, proposing and preparing a body for for the Son. There's this Holy Spirit who, who works the miracle in the womb of the Virgin Mary. If you read Matthew's Gospel, there you have all three members of the Holy Trinity active together in the production of this child as the angel of the Lord comes and announces to Joseph what's going to happen as the Holy Spirit does the miracle in the womb of Mary and as the one conceived is God with us, Emmanuel. All of God is involved in our salvation. God acts inseparably, indivisibly for the salvation of his people. The Father preparing the body, the Spirit bringing it about to pass, and the Son assuming it. John Owen puts it like this, there was no distinction of time in these distinct actings of the holy persons of the Trinity in this matter, but only a disposition of order in the operation. For in the same instant of time, the body was prepared by the Father, wrought in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, and assumed by the Son to be his own. In the same nanosecond of willing it, it happened. That is the mystery of the the actings of the triune God. And the actings of the persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are the actings of the one same God, in his nature, in his will, in his intellect, in his power, and in his love. Here's how Owen puts it again. I'm making up for not quoting him very much last night. The ineffable, indivisible, inseparable, but yet distinct operations of the Trinity in, about, and towards the human nature of the Son indicates their distinct subsistence in the same divine essence. So why did he have to assume our nature? Verses 6 and 7. So that he would obey. The Son doesn't obey the Father because the Father's will is the Son's will and the Spirit's will. That's why there's no eternal subordination of the Son. I mean, seriously. You don't have to have half a brain to see that. You just have to have lots of hubris to see it. But the son needed to become a creature. He had to take on our humanity. 
if he was going to obey the Father. The Father took no pleasure, it says, in the sacrifices, but he took pleasure in his Son. This is my beloved Son. There was no necessity on him. He willed to do this for us. He acted on his own will to come and to take our nature, to carry our debt, to undertake our duty in our place, and to perfectly obey and perform all the law's demands, and to endure all of the law's penalty on behalf of his people. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the angels who are seeing this all happen before their eyes in a nanosecond? Suddenly, whoa, this is God with us. The baby crying, the diapers, all of this stuff. You can imagine them wondering to themselves, the alarm, the wonder, the incredulity, the praise. They don't know what kind of thing to express. And how remarkable for us, how, how marvelous, how wonderful the Savior's love for us, that he comes in a body to do the will of his Father in heaven. And in that body, in that body, we see in that body the perfect receptacle for the presence of Almighty God. They'd had a tent to try and be a receptacle. And they'd had a temple to try and be a, 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 a receptacle for the presence of God. And neither of them were fitting. But this, this body, this body was the perfect vehicle for the presence of God in a creaturely manner. That's why it says in the previous chapter, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have to come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. The key there are the words not made with hands. You find it in Daniel chapter 2 where the king has a dream of a, the kingdoms of the world. You remember in their glory. And this little stone cut out of a mountain is released and demolishes the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus identifies that with himself. This stone not cut with human hands. This stone, this figure brought to reality by the direct action of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary, is the means by which, is the new temple in which God is with us. Because all man-made tents and temples are inadequate to house the divine presence. Paul made this point when he was talking to them in Athens and he says the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. And in stark contrast all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus Christ. That's what the angel was telling Mary when he said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the child to be born from you will be called Holy, the Son of God. There you have the Trinity. Right there in that text. 
Jesus talked about his body as the temple. He told them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. This was the body the Father prepared for him. This was the body by which he died. John Owen says, His human nature doth more excel the old tabernacle than the sun does the meanest star. His human nature was suited to be the sanctuary of God. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners. And in that human nature, he dies. In that human nature, he offers his own blood. The blood of fools and goats can't atone or take away sin. But the author insists that Christ as our high priest does not act on the basis of the blood of animals. He acts on his own basis. The blood of bulls and goats, he says in verse 13 of chapter 9, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes, etc., for the purification of the flesh, flesh, have some measure of goodness. But how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, you see the Trinity there? Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living and the true God. He had the perfect body, the perfect humanity in which to live a life of perfect human obedience. And I don't think for one minute that, that he had a, an advantage in us, that somehow or other because he was human and, and was united to the Son of God in that union, don't for one minute think that there is a bleeding over of his deity into his humanity or his humanity into his deity. No, these are quite kept quite distinct within him, within his person. As a human being, he endured what human beings endured to the full extent of pain and suffering and loss and terror and anguish. And he did that for our sakes because of our sin and for our salvation. In the book of Revelation, John weeps because there's no one found worthy to open the scroll and the seals to effect the contents which were the unfolding history of the world. He weeps and one of the elders says to him, don't, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And he turns and he sees a lamb standing as though it had just been slain. The, the one who had died as the lamb of God, now risen and exalted, comes forward. He comes forward to exercise the power of his risen life. The heavenly participants, as they look on, sing a new song. Worthy, they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals. You were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. 
their salvation song was, you were slain for us. You bore our sins and our sorrows and you made them your very own and you bore the burden to Calvary and you suffered and died alone. How marvelous. How wonderful. It's the effect of that death, of that sacrifice made by that high priest that leads to the cleansing of our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And I don't know about you, but I need the kind of confidence and assurance that that cleansed conscience brings and that comes only from Christ and Christ alone. And there is no greater message, is there, than that. This one who now lives in the power of an endless life, this one who was brought down and made of the order of Melchizedek has been brought up and exalted to the highest place that heaven affords. It's his by sovereign right. And all we can do is worship him, love him, and spend our lives in his service because he's a worthy Lord. He's a worthy Lord. He's a gentle friend. And he forgives us when we fall. And he strengthens us when we feel weak. And one day we'll see him face to face in the body the Father prepared for him. The body that he assumed for us. Father, we pray that you would give us great confidence in all that our Savior, the Lord Christ, has done on our behalf. And will you, Lord, stir us up in this work we're called to do, many times discouraging, oftentimes attacked, one factor or another, and all the time, servants of him who loved us oh so well, our dear Lord Jesus. Strengthen us, we pray in his name. Amen.